0: Welcome in, everyone, to the Saturday, November 15th episode of Celtics Beat. I'm your host, Larry H. Russell. Great show coming up, as always. First, gonna we'll be joined by Adam Kaufman of Boston.com. And then we'll have Phoenix Suns color commentator and 17-year NBA veteran Eddie Johnson back on the show. It'll be great to speak with Eddie again. And obviously... Oh, geez, we don't have a lot to talk about, do we? Of course we do. Terrible week for the Boston Celtics. Everybody thought, oh, this team might be turning around and they might be something after that big win in Chicago last Saturday night. Uh, two horrific losses going into this week. I was thinking 1-1 one and one at worst. Hopefully 2-0. Oh. These are the games that I don't say that they need to win, but when you have home games, you like to think you can capitalize on it, particularly that. Let's go back to Wednesday night first before we get into last night's game. Let's go back to Wednesday night. Um, Oklahoma City's coming in on the second night of a back-to-back. Coming in, I believe they lost in Milwaukee the night before. Didn't really play that well up in Milwaukee. You get up 15 points on them. How in God's name do you not win that game? Particularly when you haven't played since last Saturday. Oklahoma City had played the night before, I believe, in a different time zone. I I don't want to say, oh, well, like, there's no excuse not to win that game. Guess what? There was no excuse not to win that game. Chris Mannix said it on the Comcast feed the other night. Worst loss of the Brad Stevens era. I think obviously, obviously his first game here in Boston when they blew that giant lead to the Bucs is probably his worst loss. Got him off to such a bad start. But that was pretty bad. If you, you get up 15 points on a terrible team. I don't see how it wasn't possible that they could not put the foot on their throat. That was a bad Oklahoma City team. that hadn't been playing that well. Once they got Reggie Jackson, it was over. But even offensively, they just couldn't score in that fourth quarter. Rajon Rondo, he's got this great game. He's the triple-double all game. Six rebounds in the first quarter. Only had three the rest of the way. And none in the fourth quarter at all. Once again, total non-factor down the stretch. Reggie Jackson completely took over the game on the other end. It didn't matter who they put on him, whether it was Rondo or Avery Bradley. And they ended up losing that game going away. That was a very deflating loss. And so yeah, then you think going to last night, that loss would really tick them off. They did. They came out. They played a very energetic game. They, they played well for three and a fifth of a quarter. And sure enough, here we go again. The offense just falls apart. Rajon Rondo becomes a completely different player in the fourth quarter than he was in the first, second, or third. And the team can't score a basket. They scored 20 points. They couldn't really score at all at the end of the game when it got close. And Cleveland was making that run. And then, of course, they couldn't make stops in the defensive end. You give up 122 points, you're likely going to lose a game anyways. But I think that's the dominating issue for this team right now. That is, going forward, these blown leads. Sean Graney tweeted last night this team has had 19, 18-point eight point leads in the Brad Stevens era. They've lost six of those leads. And that doesn't include the 15-point games they've lost. They've lost plenty of those. They lost one back there on Wednesday. They lost one to Toronto earlier in the year themselves. They nearly blew that game against the Chicago Bulls, for goodness sake. Who is this on, though? Is it on Stevens, as the team has blown a ton of games under his watch? Or is it on Rondo? I've written about this for years. I wrote, wrote about this back during the 2012 season. Biggest question regarding Rondo. Terrible player at the end of games. Horrible. Go back, look at all the columns that I've written, go to 82games.com, look at over the years, it's crunch time statistics, which is team within five points on any on any side of it for the last five minutes of the game. He's an atrocious player across the board in that situation. Do you want that guy as the main point of your team? Do you want that guy as the focal point of your offense? He's got the ball for three and a half quarters, but then he plays a, a different way for that final half quarter that throws the offense out of sync, and that's why this team's not been blowing leads just under Brad Stevens. You go all the way back to 2010. That's when these blown leads started. That's when they exactly when they started. As soon as Rondo became the dominant ball handler on offense, 2008, 2009, they were running the offense through Garnett. Or at least they were running it through the high post. They were doing Paul Pierce isolation plays. Rondo had his touches too, but he didn't nearly have the usage rate as he had had these last five years. And sure enough, this team has been blowing leads under Brad Stevens. They blew some terrible leads. Does anybody forget Rondo's last game before he tore his ACL, the double overtime loss down in Atlanta in 2013? Sellers were holding, what, a 22-23, I think it might have been a 25-point lead before they blew it in double overtime. That was Rondo's last game. they were blowing 15-point leads across the board. You go back to 2011, they blew two, a 9-point lead in the end of Game 5, a 12-point lead in Game 2, and an early 15-point lead in Game 4, which was the pivotal game in Boston, including at the end of the game when they had a few leads. It's been the issue. It's been the issue now for five years. Rajon Rondo plays one way for three and a half quarters. The whole offense runs one way for three and a half quarters, and it's thrown out of whack that final half quarter if the game's close and this team during crunch time has been horrible and it's the question moving forward because you got to win close games to win not just a couple games in the nba you got to win close games to win the majority of your games in the nba that's the difference between this team as of now being a 25 win team and maybe a 500 win team if they weren't learn how to win as you know as really as it's the case With almost every terrible team, except for maybe Philadelphia and the Lakers, who have no talent whatsoever to speak of. That's the case for every team in the league. Some teams know how to win. They have the better players, of course. But some teams know how to win. Some teams don't. Celtics just don't know how to win, and they have the wrong personnel for it. It starts with Rondo at that point guard position. He plays one way for three and a half quarters, and and then for the final quarter, he's a completely different guy, and the offense is thrown totally out of whack. And now the big difference is, you have Jeff Green isolations compared to Paul Pierce isolations. And you know what I think of Jeff Green? I know he's had an okay year this year, nine games in, but he's still Jeff Green. And it's still a mediocre player and a guy who has his own mental issues outright. So he's the last guy you want the ball in his hands in the fourth quarter. But I, I'm worried now. And this is, but I'm not worried because this is what I predicted. And I don't like getting the tweets after every game. See, I told you, you're wrong about the Celtics. They win one game. You're wrong about Evan Turner. Well, Evan Turner's played one good game in a Celtics uniform, one average game last night, and the rest of the game is stunk. Story for another game. This isn't a game-by-game thing. That's why Celtics Beat is a weekly show. We look to see what this team does over the course of the week. We evaluate after the week, and we go from there. We are now about three weeks into the season, two and a half weeks into the season. And so far, it has gone as, as I've expected it to. This team has fought hard early, just like they did last year. Ten and fourteen last year, leading the Atlantic Division. This team's fought hard early. They've been, they've been at, they were one game over five hundred. They've been at five hundred. Now they've lost two games. Now they're three and five. Maybe they'll get some wins this week. Phoenix at home is beatable. They got to win Philadelphia. Maybe they'll get back to five hundred before they might fall under it again. But as of now, it's going as expected. They're fighting hard early, but they're not winning these close games. And not only that, they're actually giving away these close games. They've had huge leads in most of these games. When does this team, when does it really start to get to them? When does it really start to add up? And then mentally, some of these nut guys go, you know, fall apart. But we saw last year, lost a few close games at home at the end of December. Games in Atlanta, Washington. I think Detroit was another one. They had big leads in these games. They blew it, blew them all. They lost a couple games at the end of the at the end of the month. They went out west. They got waxed. Lost every game by 15 points or whatever. And the season ended there. Could this become a problem? I mean, could this happen? Could this happen again to this team? Could we be watching the second half of the season, watching this team get bombed every single night on the way to 25 wins? Hate to say it. That, that, that's what I predicted before the season. I, I hope that isn't the case because I want to see all these guys grow. That's the only way they're going to be able to, A, trade some of these players to get the star player, that wh- whoever comes onto the market. Because as we've seen, no team is really going to be giving up a substantial impact player for potential guys. And right now, Solinger, Olenek, they're playing great. But they're potential guys solely because as of now, this team looks like it's nothing more than a 25-win team. Got to make an impact in this league. That's why Clay Thompson was nearly acquired for Kevin Love, because he was helping teams win games. And we'll certainly continue these conversations with both of our guests. All right, so let's bring on Adam Kaufman here from Boston.com. Also, Adam has his own uh, podcast, Celtics at 7, which is over at WBZ. Adam, let's get you know get rolling right away here. Uh, let jump right off the bat last night with Sean Granny sent a tweet out saying that the team has had like 18-point 18, um, 18 leads over the course of his little over a year now, and the team's lost six of those games. That's not even counting the fact that they blew a 15-point lead earlier against Oklahoma City earlier this week, and then they blew another 15-point lead against Toronto. So they've lost plenty of games. In his fact, first, his first game here, the team blew, like, a 22-point lead against the Milwaukee Bucks of all teams. But, uh, I mean, is this now becoming concerning that this could possibly attach to Brad Stevens here?
1: Uh, well, uh, first I'll say nobody does the, uh, the numbers and the research like Randy. Uh, so that's, you know, that's first and foremost. As far as, uh, uh, whether it's a concern or, or attributed to Brad Stevens, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so at all, to be perfectly honest. But yet, you know, you look at it and, uh, this team, uh, there, it's multifaceted. One, it's not as, it's not a very good defensive team. It should be better than it is based on some of the parts that it has. And granted it's been hampered of late with Marcus smart being out the last couple of games. No question. Your team's better defensively when you have smart out on the floor, but, uh, Going back even before the injury, there's been this emphasis, which you can attribute to Brad Stevens, this offensive emphasis this year on pace, which uh, is a large part of the reason why this team is one of the better offensive teams in the NBA in terms of scoring offense, which uh, looking at the roster almost is, is mind-boggling. But when you move at that pace and when you put that sort of emphasis on tempo, it forces you. I mean, it's unavoidable that you're going to take a bit of a step back defensively because you're just concerned with running the floor and, and moving the ball and, and up and down, up and down, up and down. And that's not a lockdown defensive mentality that that this team exhibited in, in years past when the new big three was here with Garnett leading the way and Pearson Allen and so on. Uh, so the philosophy has changed. And as far as attributing it to Stevens, the way I, the reason I say I I don't attach that to him is because in uh, in in the next couple of years, I was actually you mentioned the Celtics Seven Show. I did that this morning. I had uh, Mike on, who of course is the voice of Celtics on Comcast SportsNet. We were talking about that, and I asked him. I said, you know, how do you how do you align the two basically? And what he said is. Uh, I look at it and you know Brad Stevens took on a lot of of pieces when he got here. He hasn't built this team. This isn't his team yet. It's going to take another couple of years to do that. And as he does that, and obviously they're committed to him, he got a six-year contract, he's going to bring in guys who have a little bit more of a defensive focus and he can implement his system in his way. It's, It's way too early in my mind to pass any sort of negative judgment on on Brant's Stevens. So I think he's done a tremendous job. But if you're going to say this team has holes defensively, that's absolutely true. And also they don't have an interior defender at all. There's no room protector. This team needs that. You need it to survive in the NBA.
0: I want to get to the defense in a minute because I made a point to bring that up and we will. But I still want to talk about the fact that they've now been blowing, I think leads at a very unhealthy rate, uh, especially when you lose two big leagues at home. That should really frustrate you. You should be able to come back and, and get one of those games, particularly last night. They, they should have won that game against Cleveland last night. But, you know, for the last few years, I've always thought that Rajon Rondo has had a big responsibility in this. So you go back, let's go all the way back to 2008 and 2009. This team used to never blow 15-point leads. And Rajon Rondo, that's when he wasn't really, you know, an integral piece of the team. He was a piece of the puzzle. Starting around that 2010 season, the year when Garnett was coming back from his injury, I thought Rondo became more of the dominant ball handler on offense. And I thought, and all of a sudden, starting in that season, the team started blowing leads like crazy. They became a terrible fourth-quarter team. If you recall, Phil Jackson in the 2010 NBA Finals told his guys as the team was blowing, as the Celtics were blowing a lead at the end of Game 5, he's going, this is the worst fourth-quarter team in the league, and they're showing it. They've been pretty much a poor fourth-quarter team since 2010. This is not just a new thing with Brad Stevens. I've always thought Rondo has a lot to do with this because, Rondo plays one way for three and a half quarters. He's, you know, He's got the ball in his hands all the time, but when it comes time to get those tough points at the end of games and the defense do get a little tighter and you may need some isolation plays to get some of those you know, that, that score some tough points, Rondo becomes almost irrelevant because he doesn't attack the basket, he doesn't shoot well from the outside, and he usually leads it to, when it in, back in the day it was Paul Pierce and we had the dreaded Paul Pierce isolations, but now it's Jeff Green and I mean, the offense is still struggling at the end of the fourth. You know, long story short, do you think Rondo, playing one way for three and a half quarters and then another way for the final half, has an issue to do as a big problem with this team being as poor in the fourth quarter as they are?
1: Well, I, I do think that he changes his game a little bit. Uh toward the end based on the situation. But, uh, you know, to go back to your first point about all these 15 point blown leads, that's not desirable. It's not something you want to do. You say that, you know, the Celtics shouldn't be doing it. And you know, I would argue that, uh, no NBA team should be, or, or basketball team should be routinely blowing, uh, double digit leads, especially in the fourth quarter. That's, you know, that, that should be a given. And has there been an uncomfortable trend of it lately? Yes, we're we're in agreement on that. But as far as Rondo goes, you know, I think he kind of hit the nail on the head in that he's... Danny Ainge was talking at the end of last season over the course of uh, the off season, talking about rebuilding this team or as he's put a building toward a championship. He doesn't like to view the team as a rebuilding team. How do you improve this team, what is it missing? What were the two key things that was missing at the end of last year? The interior defender, rim protector, I mentioned before, And uh, a finisher. This team doesn't have a finisher, and that's something that we've we've seen just in this last, uh, really, last few games. You know, people don't talk about that Chicago game. Another game, the Celtics led by almost 20 points and very nearly gave away uh, in the fourth quarter. I mean, Aaron Brooks, if anyone's ever heard of him, went off for 19 points in that fourth quarter and almost pulled the Bulls without Derrick Rose all the way back. Celtics could have gone 0 and 3 this past week as opposed to 1 and 2. Against the Thunder, 19-point lead. Against the uh, Cavaliers, 19-point lead. I think it was 17 entering the fourth quarter, and then just gradually uh, it was worn down by a by a lack of uh, of obviously shut down deep, but also not having that guy, that scorer. Who can uh, who can finish things off? And Rondo's not that guy. We saw it last night uh, in you know seven seconds left, coming out of a timeout, play drawn up. Now, wasn't necessarily for Rondo. Brad Stevens talked about how uh, there was an option for Jeff Green as well, but Rondo had plenty of time. Team down one. Doesn't go to the basket. Uh, loses his dribble. Time you know drains off the clock, and he doesn't get a shot off. That is inexcusable in that situation. But uh, Nevertheless, it's uh, the reality of what happened. It's you know, Rondo's not a scorer. That's not Rondo's game. He is uh, he's capable, but he's a distributor. He 16 assists through three quarters last night. He's got to feed the ball to somebody. This team doesn't have a Carmelo Anthony or a guy who's going to be in the the top 10, top 15, top 20, even in in scoring in the NBA. So it has to deal with with what it has right now.
0: But see, I think even going forward, even if you did give Rondo Carmelo Anthony, I still think it'd be a huge issue because my point has always been the guy plays one way for three and a half quarters, and because he plays one way, he's the point guard. The whole team plays that one way. Then the offense completely changes for that final half a quarter, and that's why you've seen this become such a terrible trend, not just with Stevens, but as I mentioned, really going all the way back to that 2010 team when Rondo started to become pretty much the focal point of the offense We were talking about the defense earlier, right? We definitely got to get to that. You know, there was a lot of talk going into the season, especially from Avery Bradley, saying that we're going to be one of the best defensive teams in the league. Who cares that we don't have a win protector? We're not going to let them get to the rim anyways because we've got myself being Bradley, Marcus Smart, and Rajon Rondo. Uh, Hasn't really worked out. The Celtics are pretty much one of the worst defensive teams in the NBA. Is it really that simple? Is it really they don't have a center, and that's the reason why they're this bad defensively?
1: It's a huge part of it. I mean, look at any of the successful teams around the NBA. That you know, the reason they are successful is because of their uh interior defense. In, in many ways, you know, you have to have a rim protector, and that doesn't mean it has to be Dwight Howard or somebody like that. I mean, this. The, and when I say that, I, I mean size and stature. A lot of people have negative opinions of Dwight Howard, and I'm quite frankly included in that group. But you know, had the Celtics been able to go out and acquire, say, Omar Achik from. uh uh, from Houston before he was dealt away to the Pelicans. He would have been a guy that could have helped. Is he much of a scorer? No, but he's a decent enough rebounder and protects the rim. He can block shots. You know, that's why people were excited about the idea, of, uh, even though he was going to miss this season injury, the idea of Joel Embiid potentially falling to six in the draft before the Celtics uh, wound up with Mark Smart when Embiid went to the Sixers at number three. and It's why people are looking ahead to this upcoming draft and the fact that there could be as many as uh, six high-level centers taken in uh, in the front half or throughout the first round. Uh, this team needs size. It has good guard play, both offensively and defensively in terms of what it needs to be. Uh, the power forwards are good. They're talented. Uh, again, you're not talking about uh, necessarily having perennial all-stars, though Jared Solomon could become that guy as he continues to develop. Um, and they're good enough at the wing as well. They don't have that guy in the middle. You know, Kelly Olenich, for me, is not that guy. He's, I mean, he's a, he's your prototypical stretch four. He's not a five. Uh, Tyler Zeller's a five. He's not a starter. He's a bench player, at least on a, you know, on a good team. He's not a starter. So, uh, and Vitor Favarani, he's not that guy. So I do believe that is, you know, that's your change defensively. Does it bring you down from allowing, 107 points a game to 95? No, probably not. Um, you know, pace, as we talked about before, comes into play there. But it can make a world of difference.
0: Yeah, see, I think this team looks still very far away defensively where you just tell me one guy at 25 minutes a game, like let's say Roy Hibbert, I just don't saw, see how he's just going to change this whole thing. But I don't even, you don't have much time. So I do want to try getting you out of here. I got one more question for you. Uh, So can you think this team could really rebound from not just this loss, but now it's starting to become like a a few amount of losses? You know, we see this with, you know, bad teams. They play hard at the beginning of the year. They lose some tight games. And then when you get to Christmas and the New Year's and they start to continuously lose these games – you start to see them kind of fade away, and that's what happened to the Celtics last year. They fought hard up until that West Coast trip at the beginning of January. They got smoked out there, and then that was it. The season was pretty much done. Do you see that the season kind of heading down the same path, or do you think this team is, is could break through here?
1: No, I still have, uh, I'm not going to say high hopes for this team. I don't think it's a, you know, a championship contender or anything like that. I'm not delusional, but uh, if you were to tell me this team could go on a decent enough run, and and not necessarily qualify for, but fight for uh, an eight-seed in the playoffs, uh, you know, that wouldn't surprise me. I'm not one of those people that uh, that had that penciled in at 23, 24, 25 wins. And I mean, coming into the year, my projection, my personal opinion, was this is a team that could win 34, 35 games uh, if, you know, if a lot of things broke right. Uh, you know, Rajon Rondo was missing the majority of last year. If he's not traded this year and you have an healthy Rondo for a full season, uh, you're going to tell me that's not a 10-win improvement? Well, most people would say that. I feel it can be. Uh, Avery Bradley, healthy as well. He missed a ton of time last year. Continued development of Jared Solinger, of Kelly Olenek, adding some other complimentary pieces. Marcus Smart, what he can do as a rookie. So I'm not going to be overly discouraged by a couple of, uh disappointing, you know, heartbreaking losses, which they were against an inferior Thunder team given its injuries, and a team that quite frankly itself has never should have beaten the Cavaliers coming into the game, but when you're up by as much as you were in the fourth quarter, of course you're supposed to win that game and they weren't able to. So uh I like that after the game Grant Stevens and Olenek and others were saying there are no moral victories. Uh, you know, we're not happy about this, but we can't let it linger. We've just got to focus on the future and move on. And all these cliches, that's fine, I'm good with that. As long as that's actually their mentality, and I believe it to be. So, uh I wouldn't count up this team, I wouldn't worry about it uh fading away into into you know, the the nothingness of your sports fanhood, uh come Come Christmas time, because I don't think that that's the case. I think it's it's still a fun, energetic team to watch uh, that plays an aggressive, entertaining style of play, and uh, is going to continue to be that throughout the year, no matter how many wins it finishes with.
0: All right, Adam, we're about ready to let you go. Um, so you have Mike going on your podcast. Tell everyone here where can they where can they catch that, especially the non locals.
1: Sure, of course. We did uh, our show this morning, which aired on, uh, as you said, WBZ-FM 98.5 Sports uh, The It's an hour-long show, Celtics at 7, and the uh, complete podcast, full hour, will be on uh, CBSBoston.com, CBSBostonSports.com specifically, uh, a little bit later on today.
0: Adam Kaufman, Boston.com, also of Celtics at 7, over at WBZ. You can follow Adam on Twitter at AdamMKaufman. Adam, thanks so much for hopping on.
1: I appreciate
0: it. All right, Adam. Thanks so, so much for joining us. Great conversation. So much to talk about there. I don't think we'd have to talk about any more about the Celtics blowing leads. It's been the storyline of this franchise for the last five years, and it definitely has been the storyline of the Brad Stevens era so far. Point about the defense. I don't think we've really been talking about this, but going into the season, I mentioned how Avery Bradley, was very excited about this team defensively and their players like Bradley and I believe even Rondo himself who mentioned how the team expected to be a top defensive team in the league and I think almost all of us were really rolling their eyes. And in in the preseason that, that seemed to be the case. I mean another I playing at this as Adam mentioned they're playing at a tremendous pace and everything. We don't have to look at points per game, but it's not how you look at it. But regardless, teams are shooting way too high of an efficiency on them. You know, Going into the preseason, these guys like Bradley, Smart, Rondo, they were really taking this seriously. However, that just hasn't been the case. I'd love to say that this team is a rim protector away, guys, and I know there's a lot of people out there that are saying that's the case. Find a way to tra- trade for Roy Hibbert. I personally would be all for that. You, know, you have to hope that Indiana season stays pretty much in the tank, and I think I pretty much almost everyone believes they will. That team's got nothing. Hibbert's sort of... I don't know, God forbid, has an attitude problem, has Paul Silas issues, and the Celtics were able to steal him. Now, I'm sure there's going to be pretty much a bidding for Roy Hebert. Guys like this come on the market. They're always overpaid, but that's what they got to do. This team, I think, I sit back and I think about it, and I say, now, what would, what would be the case? What does this team really need? Obviously, they do need the superstar player. Every team that wants to compete for a championship needs that. But right now, that guy not only isn't on the market. I don't see that guy being on the market for the foreseeable future. I guess Durant's going to be the big name, but it looks like it's only between pretty much D.C. and Oklahoma City, right there. But other than that, there really is no Kevin Love possibility here. I know Lamarcus Aldridge's name. He's not the guy. I don't think, especially Lamarcus, LaMarcus Aldridge's approaching thirty, approaching playing in the year of, in the NBA now for ten years. So I think it's probably best to probably build this team at a cheaper rate and maybe getting a guy like Roy Hibbert for not too many of those draft choices. You don't sell a farm. You leave a lot over. I know Hibbert's almost a max player. Maybe getting a guy like Hibbert, keeping Rondo, and then after that, I don't know, and hoping that team maybe becomes about a 45, 50 if you win team in the Eastern Conference, and then you can build off of that. But I truly don't know. I think it does go back to Rondo myself. This team... The, where they're going, like I said, I hate I hate saying this. I'm right now, I'm not flabbergasted. I'm just I don't know really what road the Celtics take, and I don't think that road is is pretty much there right in front of them. And I think at this point they just need to have as many options on the table. All right, so this probably is going to be the last time we mention a potential Celtics trade target. That's pretty much the storyline of this team until they get good again. Hopefully sooner rather than later. But this team is going to go forward. They do have the Phoenix Suns coming in here this week. They should you like to, If you looked at this week, I believe they have Phoenix coming in here in Boston on Monday. They go at Philadelphia next Wednesday. And then they play Memphis in Memphis on Friday. You definitely like to come out of that with two wins. You're looking at that schedule, and you're pretty much kind of writing that Memphis game off. You can make the case that Memphis is the best team in the NBA so far. Philadelphia, no excuse to win that if they if they lose that game, no matter what they do against Phoenix in the day before, or the game before, excuse me, no matter what they do against Phoenix, they got to beat Philadelphia, especially with Philadelphia lose by 53 the other night and pretty much being the worst team in the history of the NBA through 10 games. I believe they have a minus 16 point differential. No excuse to lose to Philadelphia. And quite frankly, I believe there's not—I can't say no excuse to lose the Phoenix Suns. Phoenix is a very good team, and we're going to get Eddie Johnson in here in just a moment. However, Phoenix is your third straight home game. You don't lose three straight home games. You don't really lose two straight home games, even if you're a 500 team, which I think should be the goal of this Celtics team. I don't think they're going to be 500. I don't think they're going to be close to anywhere near 500. But for the players on this team, that should be the goal. You really can't lose three straight home games. So there's just no excuse for it, especially when you lose two games the way you do. We have two 15-plus point leads, one early, one late. You blow them both. You really need to come out guns and blazing against Phoenix. Phoenix is a good team, but they're beatable. They're at the end of a long road trip. This is a game the Celtics can win. I don't think they will win, largely because I don't think they're this team. Some people do think they can be competitive this year. I'm not one of them. However, if they are going to be competitive, this is a game they need to win. But let's get someone in here who knows a little about the Phoenix Suns. Let's bring them back in. Eddie Johnson, 17-year NBA veteran, best-selling author, author of You Big Dummy, just recently published, and also Phoenix Suns color commentator for Fox Sports Arizona. Eddie, welcome back to the show.
2: Hey, My pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for joining us once again. So we talked over the summer. The Suns had that you know great year. They would nearly made the playoffs after everybody predicted they'd be one of the worst teams, not only in the league, almost in NBA history. So the expectations from last year. How was that translated from th- this year? Obviously, I thought that that team sort of used the fact that you know Vegas installed them as like an over/under of winning sixteen and a half games, and they nearly won fifty. They used it as motivation last year. How was that translated to this year?
2: Well, I think it's you know, they've taken what was successful for them last year and winning forty eight games, uh, to trying to build on it. Uh by going out and signing Isaiah Thomas from the Sacramento Kings. And and then obviously the draft picks that they use. Uh and uh, uh T J Warren, uh who hasn't had the chance to play yet because of a thumb injury and Tyler Ennis. And then the maturation of Alex Lynn. So you know, those things came into play, and obviously they lost Channing Fry to free agency. They pick up Anthony Tolliver, uh, and so, you know, they're still a, a up-tempo, three-point shooting basketball team. That's what they do, and uh, so far this year, they've had some success in, in beating some good teams.
0: You mentioned Isaiah Thomas. He's been incredible. Um, in fact, he's just gotten... Much better since Sacramento, and he was one of the best bench players in the league on Sacramento last year. He's really been a standout. Very easy transition. Has he made a guy like Eric Bledsoe or any of the other guards that Phoenix has expendable?
2: Well, I don't know if they made it expendable. I think it's all a package. Uh, they showed a commitment in Eric Bledsoe by signing him to a long-term contract. So uh, I think they believe that three guards will work in their system. And uh, that's what they're going with, and uh, it's been Uh, successful—not playoff successful. That's a goal to get there this year. But uh, all in all, I think you know it's—it's been proven uh, internally that these three guys can play together, and it's just uh, a maturation process.
0: And that we are—I'm going to stick with the guards here that now we're talking about. We are—we just mentioned Bledsoe. While Isaiah Thomas has been phenomenal. For Phoenix, Bledsoe, I've always been a huge fan of him. I can't tell you how many columns I've written where I've said said for the Celtics trade either Kevin Garnett for Eric Bledsoe back when he was on the Clippers, or even throwing Rajon Rondo for Eric Bledsoe out there. But he's actually been a bit of a disappointment this year. Did that contract dispute affect him in any way, or just a slow start, handful of games, sample size? Don't worry about it. He'll play much better in the second half.
2: I, I, I think it's you know it could be a combination of the two. I mean, and I would I would I would be disappointed uh, if he doesn't feel pressure uh, from the contract. He should, uh, but you know I think he's a very talented basketball player. Uh, I think more so than anything, he's trying to adjust to, to the three guard situation as is all three of them, tell you the truth. And, you know, he'll be fine. You know, he's still a young player. Uh, I think he knows that he hasn't really done anything yet to justify the contract that he's gotten, and everything is in front of him to prove that the Phoenix Suns made a correct decision. And I think they will. I think he will. I think he's that talented.
0: Has he still been bringing it defensively, though?
2: Yeah, yeah he's a very good defensive player. And you know, like I said, he didn't have a bad offensive game against the Brooklyn Nets. He just didn't get a lot of shots, and he only played 23 minutes. And the reason why is because Isaiah Thomas and Gerald Green were playing out of their mind. So it's all about a W. And I think you know, defensively, you know, he could eventually be one of the better guards in the league.
0: You mentioned also now Gerald Green. I want to switch. I, I am amazed at him. He was drafted by the Celtics nearly 10. I think just about 10 years ago now. I think it was that 2005 draft. Remember it very well. Everybody here in Boston was ecstatic that Gerald Green fell to that pick. Didn't work out. Then he was traded to Minnesota, and then he pretty much fizzled out after that. Bounced around all sorts of minor leagues. I'm not even sure if he went overseas. Everybody, I just totally stopped paying attention to him. He just looked like the classic Harold Minor guy. Just fizzled out. wasn't you know didn't have maturity. Had sort of a um, He was brought in, I believe, by the Nets a few years ago, did all right, and then he played all right on Indiana, and then he really burst out with Phoenix when he signed a contract with the Suns. Or no, excuse me, he was traded for Luis Scola uh, last year. Has has he learned anything from Phoenix, or has this sort of been just a slow maturation process with him?
2: I think it's a maturation process, as it is with every player. Every player reaches a peak in their career where they figured it out. You know, Gerald Green did not go to college, uh, and I'm definitely proponent of, of forcing kids to at least stay in college to their junior year, <clears throat> and I think Gerald Green's a perfect example. Uh, this would probably be, what, Gerald Green's second year in the NBA if he went the full gamut of going four years to high school. It would be his third year, four years through high school. Uh, I mean, four years through college, and then uh, three years in the NBA. This would basically be the time where you would think a player would be coming into his own. So if anything, I think what Gerald Green has found out is he should have gone to four years of college. Uh, And if that had happened, you know, he'd be looked at as an all-star right now because it would be his third year. But unfortunately, it's his seventh year. And that's what people look at.
0: Yeah, Personally, I mean, I have to give him credit. I mean, because he's experienced so many lows, and pretty much it was almost all lows in the NBA I mean he really didn't he really didn't do anything and usually yeah, there was another guy that Celtics had by the name of Kiedrick Brown pretty much almost the same thing super freak athletic guy Keedrick actually went to 2 years to a junior college but he just wasn't ready got the crap picked out of him for 2 3 years in the NBA got discouraged it ended up eating his way out of the league and you never really heard from him again I mean Harold Miner was sort of the same way was sort of self-anointed you know just got the crap picked out of him and you never really heard of him again it's incredible that Gerald Green has been pretty much pushed to the bottom of the bottom, to the complete abyss. Everybody forgot about Gerald Green by 2008-2009. And in the last two, three years, it's it's just been absolutely amazing that he's established himself to, I don't want to say one of the best players in the league, but, I mean, a, a, a more than plus player at his position.
2: He's definitely one of the most potent players in the league. I mean, I tell you that. There's not many players that's going to uh, change the tempo of a game better than Gerald Green. And uh, that's what I love about him. Uh, I think that he's tremendous. His attitude is tremendous. Uh, he has it figured out. And uh, his growth has been just unreal when you just talk about this basketball team and, and where he's come from. And, you know, back-to-back games, guy. not many players in the league can drop 26 and 28 back-to-back games off the bench. And, uh, you know, that's something that I did for my career. I understand it and that's why I know it's very difficult to do. And uh so I'm just so interested in uh how it pans out for
0: him. You had uh like did you score like 43 or 45 and a half once were you starting or was that off the bench? Off the bench. <clears throat> you did. You that? Know,
2: I have I have the number tagged on me that I'm the highest scoring player in the history of the league off the bench. It's fine. You know, I look, you know, 19,202 points, exact. Probably give or take a few. I think I got some buckets they didn't credit to me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and, and most of those came off the bench. I was a starter maybe my first four or five years in the league. And after that, uh, I had to learn how to come off and, and be productive. And I think Gerald Green and Isaiah Thomas is, is learning that as well.
0: It's certainly not easy. want um, else, there's also one name I definitely want to get to. Alex Lenny was picked he was actually, there were rumors, uh, was it now, two years ago, he was going to be the number one overall pick. I believe Phoenix picked him at four or three, something along along those lines. How has he progressed so far?
2: I think he's coming along. Obviously, the broken finger twice so far this year has set him back. Uh, but I think you know, he has a very big upside. I really do. I think as his confidence continues to grow, uh, he is going to be a, a dynamic center uh, in the NBA. And, uh the Suns are going to be very happy that they
0: drafted him. So it's clear too that the Suns, they're sort of like a rich man's version of the Celtics, in my opinion. They have a lot of these very good players. Um and in the and in the case of Isaiah Thomas, I'd actually argue that he's I would possibly say so far it's we're only nine games in or whatever, but he could possibly challenge for an all star spot. But they have a lot of very good players, but it still seems like they're missing that core guy, like that top ten talent in the NBA. Is that still the end goal for Phoenix to maybe get one of those guys or maybe even two of them and sort of go from there, or are they just going to build this from the ground up here?
2: I I think, you know, it all depends on how it plays out. You know, I think uh, the key in anything is is patience and and obviously finding the right – time and situation to make the move and I think that's what they're doing they have the money to spend I don't think it's an issue at all and uh, I think you know they just don't want to get locked into something that doesn't turn out right and so uh, they have the time to to decide and get it done and I I think they're going around it the right way
0: we're going to shift sort of the discussion of this game that's going to be played Monday night here in Boston Uh, what would you say that there's any weaknesses that the sellers could exploit
2: well, I mean, you know, inside, I think the Suns, you know, struggle with interior presence, and uh, the games they've lost this year has been against big teams: Utah, uh, Memphis, and Sacramento. So uh, they finally kind of beat their demons the other night in and, and beating the Nets, who I think have they have the biggest team in the league. You know, if you're going to go across every position. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, they've, they've had their struggles uh, against interior presence. And so that's something any team will try to exploit.
0: So do you think it's the Sellers could possibly be that team? Because the Celtics don't really seem to have – they have Sellinger, who's a good post player. But you have another guy like O'Linick, He's more known for stepping out and hitting the outside shots. Certainly not a back-of-the-basket game or a bull in the offensive glass. Uh, do did the Celtics did the even have the personnel to exploit that weakness at all?
2: No doubt. I mean, I, I think, like I said, I think if you attack them in the interior and you're productive, uh, then th- that's the sun's Achilles heel. Uh, but it's hard to do it because if you miss a few shots and all of a sudden they're out and running, it kind of changes the tempo of the game. And so that's what I saw against the Nets, who shot 70% in the first half, uh, was getting to the rim at will. And, uh, picked it up defensively. All of a sudden, the net shots weren't going, uh, and then they just turned the game around.
0: All right, so you've discussed enough about this game, and I think, you know, I, I was this Celtics team has sort of been up and down, up and down, up and down, but odds are, you, you put a gun on my head, I think Phoenix is going to come in here on Monday night and take it. But I want to get back to your book. I, I think I read it, finished reading it. At, let's see, I had you on in June. I think I must have finished reading it sometime around, like, end of July. So you mentioned that, how there's an issue for these guys. Going forward, how much pressure do you think will be on Adam Silver to up the minimum age or even the the overall resume that players need to get into the NBA?
2: Well, it's going to be pressure because the players aren't going to agree to it uh, unless they can get a concession on the other side. And I don't know what that would be. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm I'm not, see, I'm, I, I was a player rep for 13 years of my career. So I'm not coming from a, a, a collective bargaining side. Uh, you know, I was a former player. Uh, now I'm an employee of the Phoenix Suns. So uh, I've been on both sides. And so I'm not even putting myself in that situation. Uh, you know, because if I was a player rep, I would be fighting for the age minimum not to be changed. I'm just coming from a common sense part and uh, knowing that what's going to be good for the league and where the league is going and, and and the issues that I see. And that's why I wrote my book, uh, that your listeners can go to EddieJohnson8, the numeral8.com, and check it out. Uh, I wrote it because I'm just concerned that we're getting too many young kids into the NBA and they're not ready. They're not ready mentally and they're not ready physically. And we're definitely seeing uh, these occurrences happen. Uh, Just simple mental mistakes off the court, uh, getting in trouble, doing stupid, dumb things. And then on the court, not being able to physically uh, get through 82 games, uh, having major breakdowns uh, physically because their bodies is not just equipped yet to play 82 games. And and with all the traveling and all the pressures of the NBA. And so, for me, that's what I'm looking at. Uh, I'm not coming from a money standpoint or anything like that. I just know that players today, the great players in college, they don't bring anything with them, meaning in the past you'd have a great college player come into the league and guess what, he's built up a following in college because he stayed there three years. Now the players don't bring a following because they haven't been there long enough for anybody to attach to them. And so I think that's the problem. I think the league and the players would would benefit so much in knowing that they can continue to bring fans to the pro game past what they have. And uh, that's just been my argument for the last few years.
0: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I remember reading a column by Jason Whitlock mentioning followings that don't come to the NBA and that was certainly the case when you had these guys like Ewing from Georgetown uh, going into the NBA, and we can get into all of these. You know, we can get into all of it. But I remember reading from Whitlock how college fans now, and I guess it's certainly true, they really don't like the NBA. And he just sort of laughed, like, you know, you can't get, you can't pay a kid from Duke to follow Jabari Parker and watch an NBA game. I mean, do you Uh, think, do you really think... He wasn't
2: there long enough. How can you attach... I mean, come on. I mean, you got to attach yourself to a player. And they didn't win the championship. Now, if they had won the championship, then probably so. But, you know, he didn't win a championship. And quite frankly, you know, the way uh, training and the way workouts are set up uh, after a college season quite frankly, probably only when, and I'm not saying that Japar Parker did. Maybe he did stay in school. But a lot of these players check out of school in the spring semester because they have to do a lot of the traveling and the workouts to prepare themselves. So, really, they're only on that campus, if you're a freshman, one and done, you're on that campus probably three or four months. I mean, who can attach, who can attach themselves to you with only three or four months on a campus? It's just that. As it's just so far fetched to me. It's just unbelievable, and so that's why they don't bring anybody with them, and and so because of it, you know, I think it hurts the game.
0: I actually agree with you one hundred percent. I and I specifically this now this Whitlock column is just resonating in me, and I remember reading it now six or seven months ago, oh. and I, I agree, you're completely right because. You mentioned how, yes, they bring fans with them. They're huge college followings. And we also, too, get exposed to them, you know, far earlier. I mean, we knew Tim Duncan three, four – about – not three or four. He really – he was a late bloomer. But we knew these guys – we were following these guys three years before they came in the NBA. Now you have to be almost like a complete – Die-hard nerd to watch, like, these ESPN2 right. high school games. O.J. Mayo, we were watching his games. But, I mean, that just isn't the same when we were watching these that's, guys in, in conference tournaments and March Madness. And
2: That's normally the fan that's already an NBA fan and a college fan. See, so they're not grabbing anybody new. I mean, that's already the person that studies basketball, loves basketball, doesn't matter if it's pro or college, and – and he's pretty much informed and and he understands about that player. I'm talking about just a diehard Kentucky fan that, you know, loves Kentucky Wildcats but also loves their players. And, you know, and this guy goes there for two to three years, and this fan really connects with him, gets the chance to see him, see him on campus, see him in the community. And then when he does leave, they feel like they have to follow him we don't get we don't get that anymore we don't get that that crossover fan and that's the one i'm talking about it's the one that's just god die hard college basketball but you'll get them to the cross over because they have a favorite player that's leaving and we don't get it anymore and so that's for me i think that that's why they the average age to come into the nba should be 20 21 22 years
0: old i truly believe it so i'll finish this up before I let you go here do you think that there could be some pressure from former players like yourself maybe not specifically you but former players who I mean if you talk to these players who played back in the 80s and the 90s let alone the 60s and 70s I would say I mean I don't have the math numbers right in front of me I would say, say the majority agrees with you that the the age would be 21 and these kids should be going to school at least two years do you think there'll be more pressure to you know get some progress in this issue
2: I hope so I mean, uh, you know, you know, everybody has their own opinion. And so I'm not gonna, you know, try to dispute somebody's opinion. But, uh, for me, I can only speak for me. Uh, for me, I think it's hurting the game. I truly do. And, you know, I'll tell anyone that. I I just think these young guys aren't physically and mentally ready to do what they're going to have to do and hold up a professionalism that's required to be successful. And it's, it's we see it every day. I mean, it's across the board, just the dumb mistakes that athletes make. And I'm just singling out athletes, but it's just people in general. And that's why I wrote my book. It's just a simple blueprint to just doing the successful things to to just keep yourself in line, to have a productive career. And uh, an 8th grader, 7th uh, and 8th grader to an adult uh, would benefit from it. It's just not for at least.
0: Eddie Johnson, best-selling author, you big dummy. You can get it, eddiejohnson8.com, and also normal bookstores, My correct, amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles, is that yes. all right? All right, Eddie Johnson, Fox Sports Arizona. You can follow Eddie on Twitter at JumpShot8. Eddie, appreciate the time once again. Thank you so much for joining Celtics Speed.
2: All right. Take
0: care. Once again, more great conversation with Eddie. We got a lot of talk about the Phoenix Suns, in. that's going to be a real interesting game here in Boston on Monday night. Game of Selick's got to win, guys. Got to come away with it. But awesome conversation as the discussion drifted towards his book, You Big Dummy, which came out last year. Definitely I pick it up, please. You can go get it on his website, eddiejohnson8.com, and it's also available on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, standard places to buy books. Real must-read. Once that conversation got on in his book, the, some of the points that he brought up about college basketball and these younger players, you know, hey, I'm the ultimate, I don't want to say libertarian, but as the old saying goes, if you can fight a war at 18, you can certainly play in the NBA at 18. Got to give these guys their rights. But you know what? Screw it. Screw their rights. Let's be selfish. We know the product is much better if these kids are going back to, you know, playing two years, even three years in college. It was just a much better product than the court in the 80s and the 90s. These guys came in the NBA. They were developed. They were changing franchises. Yet guys like Ewan Duncan, David Robertson, just number one overall picks where it's just like, this guy's going to change a franchise immediately. Shaquille O'Neal is another one. You don't have that anymore. You get Jabari Parker. You get Andrew Wiggins. The last guy that really was the case, I guess, was possibly Durant, and even he went too. And then before that, it was LeBron, and these guys seemed to be coming out of college every four or five years because we saw them in college, we knew who they were, and they were developing at a far better rate than they would in their earlier years in the NBA as teenagers. So... Hey, you know what? I am a selfish guy. The NBA good game would improve, and as we all know, the college game would improve. I believe college basketball, I don't want to call it unwatchable, but I don't really watch much college anymore because I just think the product is pretty poor. And I hate how these players are basically essentially mercenaries. It's a joke that when they're there for just for one year, I think at this point, you might as well just have them just come out of, straight out of high school instead of just sending them to college for some token year where they don't even really even go to class. They play one season. They don't develop any relationship with the fans there. They don't really develop any relationship with their coaches. And they just play their one year, and they come in the NBA. I agree. Make it two to three years. Preferably three years. The college game would be better. The NBA game would be much better. And the NBA would get that average college fan back, which they've lost over the last 15 years. I mentioned the Jason Whitlock column. Eddie Johnson brought it up, too. These guys don't bring their fans with them. The only fans that they have are the diehard fans that watch the NBA anyways. Nationwide, you look at the Midwest, they don't really don't care about the NBA. You look down at the South Coast, same thing. ACC, basketball country, North Carolina could care less about the NBA there. If these guys were in college, they were developing relationships with their fan bases, with their fellow classmates, they'd follow them in the NBA, and you have a bigger base of NBA fans it really only make sense business wise. I think Adam Silver is going to push it. I really like what Adam Silver has been doing so far. He seems to be very pragmatic. He seems to be very progressive. He's on the cutting edge. Obviously, he's got this thing coming out now, really pushing to legalize sports betting. I love it. It's got nothing to do with bringing trashy people in a certain area. It's complete nonsense. It's all just fear mongering. We know the reason why. Whole other show for a whole other day, but Silver, pragmatic. This guy's not a dinosaur. We could go on about this on all day, but there's a lot of talk about the NBA, around the NBA in five. Let's do this. Kevin Garnett tells Adrian Wojnarowski of Yahoo Sports that he's interested in buying the Minnesota Timberwolves at the end of his career. No surprise here at all, especially if you're listen listening to the past shows of Celtics Beat. I had Ian Eagle on one of the times we've discussed. He thought that all along, Garnett may stay in the, in the Brooklyn Nets organization, God forbid, get along in, in some role in some management or even ownership. Garnett's a businessman, guys. If you don't know, he actually owns part of a soccer team. It's owned by a part owner of the Boston Celtics, Jimmy Pilata. I believe. It's AS Roma over there in Italy. I believe Garnett's got a stake in that himself. Been a businessman. People forget all the money this guy's made in his career. He signed two record-breaking NBA contracts. His last extension's been paying him twelve million for the last three years in the twilight of his career. Who knows? He may squeak another year out of it after at the end of his career. Will be paying more millions of dollars. He's made over $320 million in his career. And then he has even more money through endorsements. Garnett's got it. We all know he's not someone who's going out there partying that money away. I I believe it. I believe he's been saving up for years and years. And uh, I do believe that Kevin Garnett, maybe he won't be the majority owner of the Timberwolves, but he'll have some ownership stake. Guys want it that bad, they'll get it. Derek Rose coming up lame again. He's got a now pulled hamstring. It's this case now where when you have so many injuries, you begin to compensate it. And when you begin to compensate for all these injuries with your body, you start injuring other parts of your body. So now you're seeing now bad ankles, bad hamstrings. I said it before the season. I hate to say it. I think, Derrick Rose, it's all done. When you start missing multiple seasons with injuries... You just can't really make up for it. It's one thing to miss, you know, the rest of a season or even a full year. But when you start missing back-to-back years, you just begin to lose it. I mean, case in point, Anthony Hardaway, It started to look like Derrick Rose is going to be that guy. But another thing we're going to stay on the topic of Derrick Rose here, he you already know, mentioned how he was worried about life after basketball and doesn't really want to play on some of these hamstring injuries because he doesn't want to be you know, a cripple at meetings or graduations for his kids. Derrick... I feel you to an extent, but you're not the rest of us. We're not being paid $20 million, $18 million by the Chicago Bulls and another $20 million by Adidas. They want you out there on the court. They want you out there on the court, and the fans that are buying all of your crap want you out there on the court. You're a little different than the average man to be worrying about maybe walking with a limp when you're 45 years old. Kevin Love already been rumors of him opting out and heading back to Los Angeles here we go again i think that's complete nonsense that was that came up when the cavaliers were what 3 and 3 the other day and the cavaliers aren't you know they didn't get off to the start everyone thought they would listen i thought the cavaliers could challenge 70 wins i didn't think they would i thought they'd be around 65 still think they can win 65 games let's wait until maybe the All Star break to see if this team is still struggling. Before we start the Kevin Love rumors, not three and three after six games. We're six games in. Kevin Love is not leaving. LeBron James, you gotta be a fool. That guy's still the best player in the world. I know he's gotten off to a slow start, but he's still got multiple championships ahead of him. Kevin Love's twenty five. He ain't going anywhere, especially to that piss poor Laker team. Speaking of piss poor teams. Philadelphia, I mentioned earlier, a minus 16-point differential. Sellers got to win that game. Gave Houston a good game last night. They almost won, but they lost after losing by 53 points to the Dallas Mavericks the other night. I don't buy this complete garbage from people saying Sam Hinckley's an absolute genius by deliberately taking the Sixers into the absolute tank. They're the laughing stock of professional sports. Nobody takes that organization seriously at all. None of their players that they have in their roster are going to be game-changing players. That includes Joel MB, who's still sitting around doing nothing. Carter Williams and Noel are very, they're nice players, but they're not game-changers. They're going to go through years and years and years of this crap. It's an absolute embarrassment. This is the stupidest plan I've ever seen. They're never going to get much better than what they already are. But we were all talking about Houston. I want to get this up real quick. Best record in the NBA. Are they the best team? I don't think so. Nor do I think Memphis is the best team in the NBA. Although I do like that Memphis team. And they'll be around. Could make a run at the conference finals. But definitely not the best team in the NBA. Teams are struggling earlier on here. you got the Spurs. They're playing a little bit better. Clippers. Golden State's lost a couple after they got out to that great start. I still think those are your best teams right there. And when it's all said and done, if I had to put the money on it, Cleveland's going to come out on top here at the end of the day, guys. All right. That's going to do it for yet another edition around the NBA in five. And that's going to do it for yet another edition of Celtics Beat. Heard exclusively on CLNS Radio. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Chuck Dietz, Ostra Vex, and Steph Lagrato. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore beat. And you can like Celtics beat on CLNS radio and Facebook to keep up with the show. I'd like to thank our great guests, Eddie Johnson, Phoenix Suns color commentator for Fox Sports, Arizona. Adam Kaufman, first time on the show, boston.com. Also have the Celtics at seven podcast over on WBZ and 98.5 FM, the sports hub. Great job on the maiden voyage, Adam. Can't wait to have you back on again. For our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, executive producer, and myself, the host of the show, Larry H. Russell, see you next Saturday with special guest Memphis Grizzlies GM Chris Wallace for yet another edition of Celtics Beat, powered by CLNS Radio.